This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. Now, the purpose of my show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. I want to understand the work of tomorrow. Now, given my background in innovation and operations management, uh, healthcare and healthcare delivery has always been something I've been looking forward to on this show. We already had shows on radiology and artificial intelligence, on oncology and immunotherapy, and we'll have a show on the usage of mobile apps and sleep clinics uh, very soon. However, we should not forget that despite all technology, in order to get better, many patients still need a surgical intervention, and neither Alexa nor Siri will be of much help when you need that tumor removed or that uh, pinched nerve relieved. So in today's show, I want to talk about how surgical interventions are changing with advances in technology. My guests in the show today are Dr. Georges Makarian, a Wharton grad and now a neurosurgeon at Acorn General, and most recently, the founder of Megas Health. And in the second half of the show, I want to welcome Dr. Neil Malhotra, professor and neurosurgeon right here at Penn and the co-director of Penn Translational Spinal Research Lab. Welcome, George. Thanks for having me. Hey, George, you're a neurosurgeon. That sounds like the most difficult profession in the world. What type of training did you get before they let you in the OR? And neurosurgery is both rewarding and challenging. You know, the nervous system is very complex, and it requires a lengthy training period. Um, most um, most recent changes to neurosurgical training mandate a seven-year training period after medical school. And then um, many neurosurgeons decide to spend an extra year or two doing additional training known as a fellowship that uh, allows them to focus uh, the delivery of care in one particular area, such as brain tumors or spine or disorders of the blood vessels of the brain. So what does a typical work in the office look like? I imagine you have consult days and you have days in the OR. Describe both of them for us. Yeah, I spend about half my time in, in the office or in the clinic seeing patients, uh, and that typically involves um, visiting with patients. Uh, some patients are new. They're seeing me for the first time. Uh, others have been seen uh, previously and come back either for post-operative follow-up visits or in some subsets of patients, uh, they need additional testing uh, that uh, they go on to get done and then they come back to see me. Yet another subset is patients that may not be initially candidates for surgery, but end up requiring surgery after they've completed what we call conservative treatment options or non-surgical treatment options, and they can come back for follow-up. Um, the rest of my time is in the operating room taking care of patients. Uh, those are long days that start usually early in the morning. Uh, we um, visit our patients prior to surgery. We address any concerns they may have at the last minute talk with the family, go over the procedure, and then the entire operating room team huddles up with the patient, uh, not different from the way sports teams or football teams do. We go over the procedure in detail. We make sure that the entire operating room team is on the same page so that we can uh, deliver a safe experience for the patient and a proper experience, make sure no errors are made. And so that huddle really helps uh, set the stage for what we do. As an obstruct, as you know me, I'm always interested in numbers. So when you are doing consults, how many patients do you see on a day? It, it varies, um, you know, anywhere from 25 to 40 patients on any given day, depending on, um, you know, the type of patients I'm seeing or, you know, the complexity of the issues I'm seeing. Some patients, as you might imagine, require uh, a longer period to spend with them to explain things. And other patients, you know, the visits are very short and brief, and uh, and they can we can move on quickly. So, assuming you're not working 24-hour shifts, you're seeing sometimes patients every seven or eight minutes, right? Sometimes, yes. Is that if you would see your patient right coming down the street here, would, would you recognize them, or is it just so much? I have the same issue with students. You, of course, accepted from that that there are so many of them that you just kind of just get overwhelmed. Yeah, hard to recognize most people unless you've had a very long relationship with patients. I've, I've, you know, I've been in practice for nearly 18 years, and some of the patients are, are people I've taken care of for a long period of time. So some patients I recognize, others much more difficult. And, and how about the OR? How many procedures would you do back-to-back? -back? It varies. Um, depends on the length of the procedure, the complexity of the procedure. Um, on any given day, I'm 
potentially doing three to three to four surgeries on rare occasions, even uh, five or six, depending on whether emergencies arise. Uh, some of what I do involves, uh, you know, emergent situations that require immediate surgical procedures. So not all all of our surgical procedures are pre-planned ahead of time. And so a procedure for you, like working on somebody's spine, that's, is this an hour-long procedure on average? or it, On the shorter end, it could be an hour. Uh, in certain instances, it could be as long as three or four hours. Now, uh, what makes a difference between a good spine surgeon and a great spine surgeon? Well, like anything else in life, the answer to that is it depends. Um, my, my thoughts on it are uh, a good spine surgeon is someone who has good training and has experience. A great spine surgeon is someone who adopts the philosophy of lifelong learning to try to constantly improve their skill and uh, their knowledge base. And I think the, the other factor for me that's important in terms of what makes a great surgeon is someone who's figured out when not to operate or offer surgical treatment. Because Although you could justify it, it's not always uh, in the patient's best interest because of other factors that should be taken into consideration with regard to the patient. How much of your skill is in your hand versus in your brain? Uh, it's really the brain stuff that is the most important. It's understanding how your decision-making impacts a patient uh, potential, uh, most most often positively and in some instances negatively. And being aware of that is, is critical to being able to deliver uh, great care and a safe experience for the patient. Now, as a surgeon doing a procedure three, four, and maybe even five times on a day, do you sometimes feel like, pardon the wording, like, like an assembly line worker? Is there ever that perception? Or is, is there so much magic and uniqueness in delivering a procedure that... You have never thought of that work as that much of a, of a process or as an assembly line. Um, look, prior to taking your class at Wharton, I probably didn't think about it that now way. Now it's my fault. Okay. No, no, it's not. But uh, neurosurgery is challenging. No two patients are exactly identical, and uh, that's the fun part of it. However, the processes through which you go through the motions in between uh, different surgical procedures is very much different. Uh, similar to the concept of an assembly line. So, you know, the huddle before surgery, the, the debrief after surgery, the, the process that you go through to get the patients in and out of the operating room safely, uh, those are very much, uh, you know, uh, in line with, you know, a production scheme that you uh, create. The surgical procedures obviously aren't, don't feel that way, but everything else in between sure does. We talked about the flow of patients that you have in consults and in the OR. What keeps you from increasing the flow? And I'm, I'm not allowed to reveal your grade in my course, but I can tell you that you remember that you were at the top of the course, right? So you remember concepts such as bottlenecks and capacity constraint and demand constraint. Uh, so what keeps you from producing more? Is, is there basically unlimited demand for your services? Or are you feeling like you're constrained by either the OR time or the time that you have for consults? So in the consults in the, in the clinic or in the office setting, the main bottleneck is actually the surgeon. Um, and that has to do with the fact that it's very difficult to predict ahead of time how much time you have to spend with any individual patient. And because you have to meet patients' expectations and, to, and you have to be able to explain procedures and technical details in a uh, in a simplified way, so to speak. You have to uh, take the time and give each patient the necessary amount of time that uh, is required to be able to get the information across to them. So um, there are certain days where we're running right on schedule, and there are days where one patient ends up taking up a significant longer period of time for you to get through that information, and it throws everything significantly behind schedule. So uh, the, the main issue there in the office is the throughput, the bottleneck is the, is the physician. There are other areas of bottleneck that uh, uh, became evident in the post-electronic health record era. Um, the time you have to spend documenting, uh, although you create better documentation, in my opinion, is, is substantially longer, and that can uh, slow down your efficiency. There are other areas such as getting pre-certification through insurance plans and uh, scheduling of testing. But these are not usually handled by the, by the physician. These are usually handled by the, by the staff that the uh, physician works with. 
In the operating room, the problem's a bit different. Their increasing workflow has to do with the efficiency, not only of the surgeon, but also the operating room team, your anesthesia team, and the resources available at your hospital uh, or surgical center. There you have a limited number of operating rooms, limited number of equipment, uh, instrument sets, and so sometimes the, the bottleneck there isn't so much the surgeon, but it could be other factors that are beyond the surgeon's control. One of the issues we struggle with, for example, is turnover time in between surgical procedures. And that introduces a bit of variability depending on where you are, how motivated your team is to get things done and moving quickly. So the, those could be areas of bottleneck. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tevich, and I'm chatting with Dr. George Makarian, who is a neurosurgeon at Acorn General and the founder of Megas Health. Um, now, George, whenever we have a bottleneck, of course, in operations, we like to somehow offload the bottleneck, right? So if you think about any waste that could be taken out of the process, you mentioned the electronic medical record needed for better codification of the care, potentially quality improvement, but it is extra time on you. Where, where do you see opportunities to take time away from the busy surgeon who is, by definition, almost the bottleneck? Yeah, I mean, there are multiple areas where you could improve that. For example, um, in the operating room, if you have better access to be able to acquire additional pieces of equipment so that you're not having to turn them over, the turnover can happen in a separate area, then that can improve your efficiency. Uh, if you have highly motivated individuals that are part of your turnover team, that also creates an efficiency. Um, in the pre-surgical area, that is definitely the case with getting uh, patients processed and ready for the surgical procedures, such as starting IV lines and making sure all their medications are entered into the computer system, the electronic health record, and that all that information is readily available. So there are many areas of opportunities where that can be handled. I think the, the work in that area is evolving as healthcare systems uh, figure out how to optimize their electronic health record system and how to build teams of individuals that can proceed with these turnovers to uh, improve efficiency. How much of the uh, entry that you do into the digital electronic health record, how much of is that is this pulling from prefabricated text blocks, if you will? We had a show on mammographies in uh, radiology where I would imagine there's a lot of maybe more similarity across cases and so uh, our Dr. Chen back then was explaining how she could bring her time of documentation down by following, a, cut and paste sounds so negative, but having uh, uh, reusing other kind of reports in the past. Is, is that something where you, you can save time or do, do you write every report, every kind of documentations from empty piece of, sh of paper. Yeah, it's, it's hard to do that in surgical cases to the full extent. So in the way we typically document, there are two surgical notes, for example, that we generate. There's a brief operative report that is entered manually into uh, the electronic health record system, and there you can build templates that improve that efficiency. But then there's usually also a dictated report that we as surgeons uh, have to dictate, and those um, can't really be the same because no two patients are exactly identical and you usually want to report the findings, the surgical findings that you encountered during the process. And so that would be very difficult to, to create a standard template um, and, to, uh, and, and to do that effectively and convey the information that you want to your colleagues and to the patient and to insurance companies that are ultimately reimbursing you for the work you're doing. So you mentioned the room turnover as something that eats up capacity both for you, for the OR team, and uh, the OR itself. It, I, I guess for most of us listeners, it's room turnover sounds a little bit like in a hotel room. There's somebody kind of coming through and puts, puts new linens on the table and washes the toilet, and then voila, we're ready to go. Tell us what a room turnover actually is in an OR. So the room turnover is not too dissimilar from what you just described with regard to a hotel room. Uh, basically, when a patient is, uh, is uh, awakened from anesthesia and taken to the recovery area, a team comes in and uh, cleans the room, uh, changes the uh, anesthesia equipment that's needed, uh, pro provides new sterile uh, equipment that's needed for the next procedure. And then uh, after the 
cleaning portion, uh, your your surgical technologist or what what people refer to as the scrub tech, the person that uh, hands you your instruments during surgery, has to open up all these trays in a sterile manner to uh, make sure that uh, infections don't occur at the uh, at the time of surgery, and so that's the turnover process. It's literally from the uh, it's uh, you know wheels down to wheels up again. It's it's uh, in in airport analogy. It's the time that takes you to change things around and get the plane ready to, for the next uh, flight. And is that a 20 to 30-minute uh, procedure, or how, how long do you take? Uh, it varies, and it varies from institution to institution. It varies from uh, surgical procedure type to different types of surgical procedure. Some procedures, the turnover could be as short as 15 minutes. In other instances, your turnover times could be much longer than 30 minutes, uh, depending on what equipment, the number of pieces of equipment you need, the complexity of what you're doing, so on. Rather than turning over the room, you could switch rooms. And I understand that a lot of surgeons, or some surgeons at least, are working multiple ORs. Of course, they can be at any given moment there in one OR, but you can both stagger the start times or even move forth and back. Is that something that you've ever tried or...? Yeah, we, we like to do that. The unfortunate reality is that most hospitals don't have extra operating rooms um, uh, available for, for us to do that because it, um, it, it's, a, it's a question of the chicken or the egg in that instance. Uh, do you keep an operating room sort of uh, available at all times or do you, do you book cases in it and keep it productive? So um, certainly in instances where we can save the half hour or 35-minute turnover by moving to a different room, uh, that can create a, a wonderful efficiency. Um, the other factor that pertains to that is having a team because the, the typical workflow in that instance is you take your current team in the first operating room and they're the ones that proceed with the turnover between cases. So if you have a separate room where you can move your your second case into, as an example, now you need another team to be able to open that up. So it's not simply, uh, it's not as simple as having uh, two operating rooms. It's you have to have two operating rooms and two teams and two sets of equipment to be able to do that efficiently. So when it happens, it's a welcome opportunity, but uh, more frequently than not, it's, uh, it's most, most institutions don't have the ability to fully do that uh, all the time. So you have these two really expensive resources, I guess. You have the surgeon and you have the OR team with the OR room. If you would just solve for the surgeon's utility alone, you would have the multiple rooms waiting for the surgeon, so to say. And if you have basically you're solving for the, the system or certainly if you're solving for the OR utilization, you have the surgeon wait sometimes and you're, you just keep that kind of resource busy. That's correct. So, um, George, as somebody who's working in private practice, uh, you are not just doctor, but you're, you're really also CEO. And you have a, an executive MBA from Wharton. And so academically, certainly uh, have been absolutely well prepared for that. But A, you took that job on earlier. And B, there is academia and then there's practice. How, has, how, how do you find the challenges as a CEO? How, 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 how do you deal with running a business, basically? Well, my, my job as CEO is, is relatively simple and straightforward within the scope of my practice. We're, we're a small group. It, it's, I work with, uh, with friends. Uh, so it's not the same concept of managing a large hospital or a large organization in the classic sense of CEO. That said, I'm responsible for making sure that the operations are going smoothly and, and that our patients are satisfied and they're happy with the care they're getting. So there's an element to that. Most of that happens either early in the morning or late in the evening after hours. During the day, you know, we try to focus on patient care and, pa and delivery of patient care. So uh, that's sort of my role as a CEO. Do you ever feel or do you ever see colleagues where the financial interest, I guess you have this not only in private practice, but I think most visibly in private practice, where the interests of the patient might just not align with your financial interests? Well, I mean, th there's certainly some concern for that, and healthcare is evolving toward uh, changing payment models to disincentivize uh, providers from what is perceived as unnecessary or uh, excessive uh, care and treatment. We've, very early on at our practice, uh, in our 
uh, location have adopted uh, care pathways. These are algorithms that were created by major academic centers, uh, including places like the Cleveland Clinic and the Mayo Clinic, that really use evidence-based medicine to create the proper workflow and indications for whether someone um, is a candidate for a procedure or surgery. So we've adopted that very early on. We also are in a very small community, relatively speaking, and so we have a vested interest in making sure that we do what's right by our patients. That's the most important thing for us as a group. So for you, you mentioned earlier on in the show that there are certain non-invasive ways, physical therapy, I imagine, being one of them. So there is, you basically have an evidence-based protocol where you say, like, for this set of symptoms, we're going to send them to physical therapy first. And then even if it is financially, from a surgical perspective, surgeon dollars per hour might look worse, that person, there's a clinical guideline that says that you get surgery or not. There's relatively little wiggle room there. Yes, that's absolutely correct. I think that um, there are a majority of patients probably are not surgical uh, early on in their evaluation process, meaning they can undergo a number of non-invasive or less invasive treatments than a surgical procedure. The indications for surgery uh, very early on are very narrow and very specific. Does it require experience and wisdom to say no? I, I would imagine as a decision maker, as a surgeon, you let's, find, let's leave financial incentives aside. You want that patient to be getting better. We know about human decision biases, and I think most human beings, certainly experts, are known to be overconfident. So the surgeon says, like, well, if you let me cut, Christian, that patient is going to get better, versus just saying, like, time will just take care or physical. Th- is, is that something that came to you with experience? Absolutely. That's really a critical factor. A former mentor of mine from my days in residency uh, once said, the first uh, 10 years of a surgeon's career, they're, uh, they're wanting to operate on anything they can justify operating on. And then the second 10 years, they're starting to get spe- skeptical about it. And in the last decade of their career, they're usually, uh, fi- uh, they've figured out when not to operate on someone. Even though they can uh, logically recommend it, it may not be in the patient's best interest for them to undergo an invasive procedure because of a variety of other reasons that have to be factored in as part of that decision-making process. So aside from the ability to know when to operate and when not, um, we're living in times where lots of technologies are coming into healthcare and are transforming healthcare. If you compare how you're doing spine surgery today versus how same type of procedure 15 years ago, what has changed in those 15 years other than the electronic medical record? It's come a long way. It really has, not just in spine surgery, but in neurosurgery as well as in general surgery in many, many other areas. Um, for example, we have these navigational um, systems that um, think about it as a GPS system for the brain or for the spine. So now you can do invasive surgical procedures um, with smaller incisions, shorter operative times, uh, less blood loss, faster recoveries. Patients get to go home sooner. So the advent of these technologies has dramatically improved our ability to deliver safer care and probably more cost-efficient care in the long run. Obviously, there's a learning curve, and you have to have a surgeon that's motivated, uh, that wants to continue to learn these new techniques and adopt them. So uh, the GPS for the procedures, it, it, it sounds intriguing. What, what, what is it actually? Is it, is it like uh, the, an MRI that is running during the procedure that shows you where an instrument is at the moment? Or what, what, makes, what, what is the technology that enables that? Is it better imaging? Or? So I'll give you an example uh, that's out of the brain tumor world, if you will. So someone comes in with a brain tumor. They're diagnosed with that uh, prior to surgery. And on the day of surgery, they can have a new MRI, and they have markers that are placed on their head, or potentially nowadays with the newer systems, you don't even have to have the markers. New images are taken, and their images are uploaded into a a navigational system that basically allows you to create surface recognition of landmarks. And then you can take a pointer and point it on the surface of the scalp or, uh, or the skull and identify exactly where the tumor is r- located relative to where your incision is going to be. So now instead of creating a much larger incision and making a much larger opening in, uh, in the skull to get into the brain tumor, 
you can create much smaller openings, and so it creates uh, a number of efficiencies. So technologically, it's wonderful. So does that new technology make it easier to become a surgeon, or is it just perfecting the output? I mean, I, in many other industries, the codification of knowledge, the embodiment of knowledge and technology has basically enabled, if you think about the assembly line in, 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 in production, it used to take a craftsman to build a car. Now every layperson off the street with a little bit of training can put at least one piece of the car together. Uh, in the world of the surgical setting that you just described, can somebody can, can this save training time, make maybe a, a, a third or fourth tier hospital able to do a brain surgery that they previously couldn't? Or is this just something that makes it so complex that it's even harder and just the outcomes are getting better? Well, I think that the issue pertaining to that has to do with uh, repetition, right? So you may be doing the procedure in less invasive ways, but you still have to do a certain number of procedures to, to develop uh, the manual dexterity to be able to do the procedure. The other factor is, as surgeons, we're not just taking care of doing procedures. We're also learning to deal with indications for surgery as well as complications if they were to arise after surgery. And those are things that you can treat by compressing the training period simply because you have a new technological tool. So if you think about other advances, so there is, on, you mentioned this dexterity, and we talked earlier on about the kind of the brain of the surgeon versus the hands. Um, is there increasing amount of support or aid in terms of the actual handling of the patient? Uh, is there a robotic arm or other things that basically make it easier for you on the dexterity side? Sure. It, it, for trained surgeons, there are uh, adjuncts such as robotic arms that uh, allow you to do that. They eliminate tremor. They can improve visualization and illumination of a surgical uh, anatomic area. In terms of training, there are modules that are uh, being developed for surgical training that are not too dissimilar from complex flight simulators that uh, are being adopted for training purposes, and those are exciting. Now, Josh, I know you're working on a new venture. Uh, tell us about that. So one of the areas in healthcare that have uh, become really important is this connected technologies that allow us to engage patients in their care. One of the areas of interest for me is to be able to avoid readmitting patients following surgical complications. And our hypothesis is that if we can detect these complications early on in the process, we may be able to reduce the number of patients that are being readmitted. So we've created a digital platform that allows us to monitor patients closely following surgery for 30 to 45 days and uh, determine if patients are having issues or problems that we can pick up on and detect early enough and hopefully engage the patient into, uh, in their care to prevent them from having to be readmitted back to the hospital, which creates a huge burden to the patient, the family, the healthcare system, and also to payers, uh, the government and, and uh, private payers uh, that bear the cost of these readmissions. And so this is a mobile app where the patient enters information about him or herself, or is this combined with some form of sensors to either temperature, pictures of wound care? What, what, what data is this decision made? So the data is primarily a mobile uh, app or a uh, digital platform that allows the patient uh, to input certain information. There are some sensors that will be embedded into this that, for example, can check on patient temperature, as an example, and these can be uploaded through uh, Wi-Fi or Bluetooth-adopted technologies to uh, provide that information. But it, uh, it's a mobile app as well as a desktop version, if you will. George, if uh, you could do it all over again, what advice would you give a young surgeon starting their career right now? I would probably tell them to not fear change and to adopt, to be, become early adopters of technology and strive to always be at the cutting edge. Um, I think that uh, that intellectual curiosity is something that a surgeon should always maintain to be able to be at the cutting edge. Says Dr. George Makarian. Thank you so much, George. We need to take a short break right now. When I come back, I will welcome our second guest today, Dr. Neil Malhotra, who is a professor and also a neurosurgeon right here at Penn. Uh, Neil is also the co-director of Penn's Translational Spinal Research Lab, so we'll keep on talking about spine surgeries today. Uh, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow. I'm Christian Tevish, and this is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow. 
on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Tervish. Welcome back from the break. I'm Christian Tervish. This is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio here on Sirius XM. Today we're talking about surgery, and uh, I am somewhat overwhelmed because I have two brain surgeons, two neurosurgeons on my show in the first half of the show. I talked with Dr. Georges Lakarian. It is now my great pleasure of welcoming my second guest, uh, fr- I, and I kid you not, literally fresh from the OR, Dr. Neil Malhotra. Uh, he's a professor and neurosurgeon right here at Penn and the co-director of Penn's Translational Spinal Research Lab. Uh, welcome, Neil. Thank you for having me. Uh, Neil, that was true. You're literally fresh out of the OR. What, what did your day look like today before uh, coming to the show? So today is an operative day. So um, I'm doing five operations today, so shorter operations as compared to the case that we're talking about on this call. Um, so basically doing an operation and then you know dictating the operation, meeting with the family, and then going right to the next one. So tell us about what it takes to be a surgeon. I mean, uh, we talked with a previous guest a little bit about the brain versus the hand, the dexterity. Are, are, you, are you also good at fixing a bike or making something with your hands? Are you kind of a, a handy type of person to say it this way? As it turns out, I am to some degree. There is some, some data about that, about the use of one's hands and that, you know, people that use their hands regularly in their hobbies are people that tend to be um, good surgeons. And the area of the brain that develops control of the hands is is larger and, and more active. Um, uh, in my case, uh, an example of that is that I, I've just completed, after promising for many, many years, I just completed a dining room table that I built for my wife. How many years have you been doing surgery? So I've been a neurosurgeon, in, in, including my training, uh, for 18 years. And the, the training is uh, seven years. How have procedures, surgical interventions changed over these 18 years? I mean, in 18 years, I guess in any field, certainly in medical technology, is, is, is a lot of, lot of time. What is, what's different today that we would have not recognized in an OR 15 years ago? Well, so cer- certainly in some areas, the changes have been dramatic. So um, some of that being navigation and the development of robotics. So within navigation, the ability to target the lesion, um, which reduces, for example, the size of an incision, the amount of time um, sort of addressing tissues around the lesion and being able to focus rather directly on the lesion because we can get there very quickly, and that is very helpful for certain cases. As an academic now, you are, unlike our previous guest who was in private practice, uh, you have also research and academic duties. Uh, so, so how do you allocate your time between the time that you're in the OR, you're consulting with their patient family and the patient him or herself, you're doing research, you have administrative roles. How do you, how do you allocate your time between these buckets? Uh, certainly by prioritizing things. So, so far and away, the number one priority is patient care. Everything sort of falls behind that. And then we try and schedule out uh, in a way that is, you know, allows us to care for the patients that need us and then block off time subsequent to that to do the other things. So for me, I have days that are generally allocated for surgery, days that are generally allocated to see patients in the office and sometimes do emergency surgeries, and then time for administration and for running the lab. The reason the lab is so important, um, you know, and I'm fortunate to have a a big team that works with me in the lab, so even when I'm not there, it's still moving forward. The reason the lab is so important is because the goal of our research is to put us out of business clinically. We want to find solutions that mean we won't need surgical interventions anymore. And you spend, I mean, a lot of my friends here at Penn Medicine, they are basically spending like half a day a week in, in the practice and the rest is research time. You have real volume, right? I mean, it sounds like yes, you're spending at least half of your time in the OR. Slash yeah, care. It, it, it tends to be a different model for surgeons than for um, for non-surgeon specialists. So, um, you know, so I'm in the OR basically two full days a week. And then, you know, when I'm on call, extra weeks and days. And then I'm in the clinic seeing patients one to two days a week. And so, so there's a, a pretty high clinical, um, clinical volume uh, that needs to be sustained to care for patients. Does it get us back to the dexterity that if you wouldn't have that volume, you would really like a, be like a marathon runner who hasn't practiced for a while? Is, is, is that volume so specific about surgery that maybe in internal medicine it's okay to be a little rusty on the latest things, but in surgery you, you just have to, your fingers just have to remember always? 
Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say the, the rusty component for the internist. I, I can't really speak to that very well. But to the surgical practice, I, I mean, I think there's increasing literature that say that shows that surgeons who are uh, not operating uh, with any frequency tend to have more problems. So if they're not taking care of a certain type of problem a certain number of times per year, even if they did early in their career, they tend to run into more problems. And that may be a surgical skill problem. That may also be a, a cognitive problem that you're not you know, thinking about all the issues one can run into and not on top of them before they become an issue. Now, you mentioned, uh, Neil, you mentioned the lab that you're running, that's Penn's Translational Spinal Research Lab. Um, tell us about the translational element about your job. So from an idea that you have or your, your research team has towards actually one day in the clinic happening in the OR, what, what does a journey of an idea look like from kind of the inception to practice? Yeah, so so I think if I I divide my life into five parts, and so sort of three apart three of the parts are what you're asking about. Two of the parts are education and administration, so so teaching, and you know you know uh, helping to run the department. If I think about the three components you're asking about, I have true bench, you know, uh, so so basic research, non uh, you know some animal models, but no no real clear clinical translation in the immediate future. Then translational, which is very much database. We've we've built uh, a, a, a basically a medical record within the medical record to track patients more effectively, so that we can ask questions like the ideas you're talking about about how we can improve care, so improve quality, and then finally clinical practice. So I think all, I, I I play a role in all of those parts. So you know to have uh, the gestation of an idea. So my interest in, is in developing therapeutics to to reconstitute the, the spinal disc. To reverse disc degeneration, so you know I may be doing that at the bench uh, and in an animal model, while at the same time finding something or a new question that I can then look to the data sets to see if this is an issue in patient care. So then I can then go back to the bench and ask the question in a in a better manner than if I only worked at the bench. Help our listeners to understand what the bench is. So uh, it's not bench pressing, I imagine, right? <laughs> so so is this literally at the level of uh, a petri dish, or is yeah, a, a, yeah. So, so the, the bench is quite literally yes, it is. It is sort of a a, a term we use probably uh, you know that we should clarify, but um, it is literally the bench. So we have lab benches. So you know just the, like the height of your counters in your kitchen. Um, where most of our experiments are run. So that may be a mechanical device compressing a tissue to test its ability to mimic a human tissue. Um, it may be, as you said, in a Petri dish, so looking at the ability to cell of cells that we've selected for to grow on what is the implant tissue that I'm trying to get to act like a human tissue um, and, you know, and looking at those, those, those cells under the microscope. How does the translational process work differently when you're thinking about new drugs or new therapeutics compared to new surgical devices or new surgical techniques? It's my understanding that the former, there's this kind of classic FDA process of building some form of animal models, testing them, phase one, phase two, phase three. But when you find a better way to do an incision, there's a very different way of innovating. Can you, can you just compare those two for us? No, I think that, that, that is true. We, we have the capacity to innovate on a patient level. Um, so for an individual patient as surgeons. Um, it's very challenging to do that with, with a drug because the effects of the drug are so unclear until you've used it to treat a highly controlled group of patients to assess its impact. Um, you know, we, we can innovate at the patient level, like the, um, uh, one of the cases I recently did with a, with a, a robotic use to, to reconstruct the spine subsequent to the resection of a large tumor. So that's something that at the individual patient level, the device has been tested and is FDA approved uh, for one purpose, and we're expanding uh, that tool. So in that, in that situation, we might test the tool in a variety of ways first, and then we have an alternative way to do the procedure so we know that if the tool doesn't work, we can go back to the way we normally do it, um, and if it is effective, then it's re reduced tissue destruction or tissue injury, which makes the surgery better for the patient. So the patients are interested in these opportunities. So it's it's really a fascinating balance between exploration and exploitation of knowledge in the sense that you're using the same OR and your same time and the same people to some extent to push the frontier 
but also kind of to deliver the best care for that 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 patient that you have under your care right now. How, how is that sometimes getting you into decisions where you feel like ah, I have to find the right balance here? No, I think it has to be a very clear picture. I, I don't think I don't think we ever. I mean, I should speak for myself. I don't do ever, anything ever on the margin. There's no question. There's no gray area. The only things that we're doing when it comes to a patient are things that, that there's some clear data about the potential to help that patient, and we discuss it with that patient. Um, when you're talking about really more experimental, like on the margin in the gray area, that's when, you know, that's the, the, the wonderful thing about having a research lab is that's where you go to ask that question. And until you've sort of proven its capability or really its potential capability, then that you start to move into the translational space, which might be an animal model, and then and then in that case perhaps go down an FDA pathway. So you mentioned the FDA pathway. Uh, how, how how does it work on the reimbursement front? Are there situations where you are sometimes within experimental procedures, of course with the agreement of the patient, but you feel like this is the right care for this patient, but this is not yet reimbursable? Is that a situation where the financials play in? Oh, absolutely, and that is that is a big challenge. Um, you know, you want to be able to move care forward, but a payer, for example, uh, may not want to pay for that care despite evidence suggesting it's helpful. And an example of that within neurological surgery is uh, ultrasound-based approaches to treat cranial lesions. So, you know, patients with uh, tremor disorders might respond really nicely to an ultrasound-developed therapy that's come online in the last, you know, 10 years or so. But because there hasn't been that large trial, the insurer is able to say, well, we're just not going to pay for that care. Um, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow for patients. Um, and, you, you know, they're told, well, you have to do the older, more invasive procedure um, because that's what we accept. Um, so that, that's a challenge. It is. I mean, from uh, one of my friends is involved in that procedure as a surgeon. One of your colleagues, Dr. Gordon Bartol. Yes. And uh, I've. I think it's tricky in surgery, uh, and I'd be curious to hear your reaction on that. Is this idea of a placebo is kind of that we are in in traditional when we give a patient or we? I'm not a doctor. I'm a management doctor. Hell, right. Uh, so, but when when the medical community gives a patient a pill, it is perfectly legit to give the patient just a placebo. With certain procedures where, again, a randomized controlled trial with a placebo control group would also be really interesting to try out. Do you have you have you ever done a placebo operation? Can I ask you that so directly? I, I have not, and I'm I'm generally fundamentally opposed to it because of just what you said. When mm. I introduce risks for a patient, I, I for me, I want to know that there is potential for benefit. So if I'm doing a placebo operation, there's no potential for benefit, yes, yet I've introduced risk into the calculation. So in, in Scandinavian countries, they have done placebo surgeries. There's a couple of places around the world, really, that have, whether it's uh, scoping the knee or otherwise, they feel like the evidence that they've gotten from that has been valuable. I'm much more interested in uh, propensity uh, scoring matches and um, you know pairing uh, large data sets to existing data sets once you've done a lot of research, for example, that ultrasound that we've discussed, once there's been a ton of research to get you to that point, then treating those patients, giving the opportunity to treat them and give them uh, uh, the potential benefit, and then using either uh, course and exact matching, ideally course and exact mat matching and propensity score matching to find a population similar to them that didn't get the procedure to see if you can prove in, in, a, in an ideal scenario similar to a randomized trial, prove the impact of the intervention. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Neil Malhotra. He's a professor and neurosurgeon right here at Penn and a leader in translational spinal research. And we're talking about kind of what it takes to get the idea from kind of from, from the idea initially to the, to the bad side or to the OR. And part of that is really kind of running experiments. And this is when surgery tricky, and I've, I've just learned a ton from Neil on on how to make this happen, how to use data in particular to kind of learn what works and under what conditions it works. Talk a little bit more about kind of basically using data. I understand something. I mean, I've done courses on propensity score matching many years ago, but but just tell us how you've looked at kind of epidemiologically at data from past patients to make judgments of what works and what doesn't work. 
Yeah, so I think it's, it, it, you know, so, so data, when used for, for good, is a wonderful, wonderful tool as long as we know what its weaknesses are when you look at just large populations. So I consult, as, as much as I've studied these topics, I consult with statisticians. I've built an internship around it so that I have a, a, a direct pathway to sort of uh, high-level statistics. So some questions that we've asked, for example, are um, patients, when they come into the hospital for surgery, the ability, our capacity to predict um, their care course subsequent to surgery. So these are the first steps in really being able to give patients the best picture of what will happen to them. So in this first iteration, we looked at whether we could use variables that exist on presentation to predict what kind of post-operative care the patient will need. Um, multiple studies have shown that patients are much more satisfied if they are, are if their expectations align with what actually happens. So using in, in that particular study, you know, propensity match scoring to try and create a population of patients similar to the patients that we're currently studying to determine if we can effectively predict what kind of disposition care they'll need. Do they need just a family member at home? Do they need to go to rehab? Do they need to go to a nursing facility? Um, so it's a powerful tool. And then because it's effective in predicting what will happen with you know, with these patients, we then can create these automated reports that our physicians on the wards and our nurses can then use to leverage that to enhance that patient's care to get them to the right place quicker. Um, so, I mean, that's, that would be one example. Tell us a little bit about the advancement in robotics. You mentioned earlier on the improved guidance now that you have when the patient comes in. You can basically have, you know, mark on the skull for maybe like a tumor operation specific. Uh, you get some 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 both preparation and some real-time feedback on where you need to do your kind of movements with your, your instruments. Tell us how, how robotics has changed surgery uh, since you've been around in surgery. Yeah, so robotics, when I started in medical practice, robotics were really, and still are, uh, robotics in its infancy. Um, and we're really, I, I wouldn't even say we're in the robotic phase of surgery, we're in the cobotic phase. I think, um, and what I mean by cobotics is the robot is assisting me to do what I'm really doing with my hands using the robot. With the only real robotic device that is used in any sort of surgical manner also in, in happens to be in neurological surgery, and that's sort of CyberKnife, which was developed by some of my colleagues at Stanford. That's robotics. You provide a program, you plan it out, and the robot does what it's told to do on its own. Most of what we're doing is cobotics, and um, the case that I've referenced in this conversation is resection of a type of cancer where historically um, either the surgery is, is very morbid and very hard for the patient to go through, or they do a treatment that really doesn't give them any chance at a cure. So if we know surgery gives you a chance at a cure, the advantage in, in the case example that I'm speaking about is that robotics or cobotics allows me to do the surgery, in this case, through the patient's mouth in a way that I can't do it with my hands. My hands are too big to fit in the space. And the robot, which um, you know, uh, one of my ENT colleagues is controlling, allows us to get to the space that we need to to be able to do a surgery that allows us to get a cure, uh, but also a recovery rate that's reasonable. So that rather than splitting the face or the jaw that we in a way that we used to do 20 years ago, we do a surgery that now you know four or five months after surgery the patient's back at work and doing the things they like to do. So that's where I think the the, the current state of of cobotics or robotics is. Is the uh, analogy correct to piloting maybe where there is kind of different levels of, of piloting whereas the, the ones where you literally fly by wire and it's all electronic versus the one basically you have just still control instruments uh, that uh, you're basically using to fly the airplane? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a reasonable example. I think the example that, that, um, that your listeners are probably much more familiar with are automobiles. So, you know, right now we have cars that can increasingly do a little bit more of the driving for you. Um, the question is, are they doing it on their own, or are you sort of fully in control and directing them? So, you know, you know, cruise control is sort of perhaps an early, uh, an early cobotic, sort of co-pilot-assisted intervention, and now we have, you know, lane changing and, you know, point-to-point, -point, you know, guidance and assistance. I'm thinking of my recent experiment with the autopilot of a Tesla, and I, I hope that your instruments don't start, start beeping and say, Neil, keep your hands on the joystick here. Um, so um, what is, I mean, the way that you introduced Cobotics was it, you, you talked about a phase. 
ways that suggest a certain momentum, right, from that, that robotics is the end game? Or did, am I putting words in your mouth that I, you didn't want to say this way? Well, I, I, would, I would say you are correct in, in summarizing some of my thoughts, but I, I, I don't think it will be in everything. I think there are certain procedures or interventions that robotics will give us an advantage. I think if you use uh, the Da Vinci robot, you know, in its development over the last, you know, 15 to 20 years, many of the interventions that were, that, you know, were argued to be the future of cobotics or robotics in the way that Da Vinci is used, um, that that would, you know, eliminate the need for surgery. And when we studied this, you know, uh, in a reasonably controlled fashion, it, it appeared that, you know, by hand surgical interventions provided equal or in many cases better outcomes. Um, so there, there are areas where cobotics, like in, in, uh, in, in kidney and prostate surgeries, really have been an advancement. So if I think about cobotics, uh, in some sense, the essence here is that some of the knowledge uh, that you have as an experienced surgeon at one of the finest neurosurgery departments in the country gets, gets codified and put into technology does it make the life of a of a of a neurosurgeon maybe in a second or third year hospital? Does it basically in, improve their game because they can have they can benefit from some of Neil's techniques or knowledge pieces that are now sitting in part of the software and the robots? Uh, in robotics today, I would say no. In I, I think navigation, the first thing we the first technology we discussed, absolutely that has been a game changer for surgeons with less experience less, um, you know, opportunity to train, uh, uh, you know, in, in smaller settings and in, in third world countries, it, it's given them the capability to resect lesions that they historically might not have been able to resect. And some of these lesions, what we're, we're talking about here is the difference between mortality related to that cancer and a surgical cure. So, so I think that has absolutely expanded um, what, what many of our colleagues have been able to do. What is the missing piece on the robotics, the, the actual surgical intervention part as opposed to the, the, the guidance part? What, 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 is, what would be the breakthrough that is needed to make that one also transferable to the same degree? I wish I could tell you. To be honest, I think there's several pieces, and I, I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we need to be exploring it in a safe manner to provide patients um, better care. And I think it'll be a, a long series of successes with cobotics, and then we will be able to move into the era of true robotics where we've seen there is benefit by the robot-assisted tools. Uh, what do you think is next for you the next five years? Is there like a big project that you're kind of in the process of wrapping up or getting I, launched? The two areas that I'm really most interested in is continuing to further the disc research, looking for a solution for disc degeneration. We know that Everybody undergoes disc degeneration. If we all lived to be 200, our spines would be metal rods from top to bottom because the, the degeneration is dramatic. So I'm, I'm developing injectable therapeutics to, to try to reverse that. I'd like to see a big advancement in the next five years, you know, consideration for FDA trials type of advancement. And in my, in, my, in my clinical and clinical research quality work, I'd like to see dramatic advances in our capacity to predict the course of care for patients. You know, we talk about whether it's end-of-life care, um, elective care. If we could better predict for an individual patient, we know how populations do, but for an individual patient to be able to be told, hey, all patients like you who have had this problem um, and have your diabetes, your weight, your prior medical condition, so a person that looks just like you, this is how they do. Says Dr. Neil Malhotra. Thank you so much, Neil. Thanks so much for having we me. We have reached the end of the show today. Two neurosurgeons on the talk show that were certainly a lot for, for in terms of knowledge for me to absorb. So I'll uh, leave it at this. Uh, I'll point you to the website, workoftomorrow.com, to get to the whole episodes. At this point, all I've left to do is to thank our sound expert, Daniel Bruno, and my producer, Matt Dads, for their wonderful support. We hope you can join us again this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Terish, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.